Ontario, where I live, schools were closed for 135 days during the pandemic. Both here and in the United States, there was very little critical media coverage on this unprecedented public policy. But my guest on today's program was reporting on those left behind by closures from the very beginning. And now he's covering an element of the aftermath that is not getting much attention. And that is the crisis in absenteeism. Alec McGillis is an author and an award-winning investigative journalist. He's a reporter at ProPublica, and his latest piece, published both there and in The New Yorker, is Has School Become Optional? Alec McGillis is my guest today on Lean Out. Alec, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you on the program today to talk about your latest reporting in a partnership between ProPublica and The New Yorker. In that piece, you note that nationwide, the rate of chronic absenteeism defined as missing at least 10% of school days or 18 in a year, nearly doubled between 2018-19 and 2021-22 to 28% of students. Now, some cities have rates of more than 40%. You've reported on the impacts of pandemic school closures from the very beginning. What do we know in broad strokes about the group of students who are most affected here? Well, what's remarkable about this rise in chronic absenteeism is that it really is happening everywhere. It's pretty extraordinary. It's The rates are going up even in middle-class suburbs, but the rates are worst in our big cities. Our cities that struggle with poverty and other issues saw fairly high rates of absenteeism even before the pandemic, but that's now just shot up since the pandemic to where a lot of cities are actually now over 50% even when it comes to their chronic absenteeism, which which again means missing 10% of school days. So that's 18 days in a school year. You miss more than 18 days, you're chronically absent. And we've now got a lot of cities that are above 50%. It's just astonishing. And what I found going going around the country and talking to people about this problem, and I focused on some working class suburbs of Detroit, where what I found was that there's just been, in a lot of families, a complete erosion of the norm of going to school. We had this, you know, over decades, we had built up this in our country and elsewhere, but it really kind of started in, in the U.S., built up this expectation that you go to school, that, that that's just what you do. And and if you're, you know, if you're not going to school, then you're, we are, you had a word for that. You were a dropout, but you went to school. And, and during the pandemic, during the year, that year or more of closures in a lot of cities, that norm just eroded and, and the routine, the habit of going to school fell away. And it became, in a lot of families became kind of optional to go to school. It wasn't anymore that big a deal if you missed a day or two or three just because you didn't feel like it, or you maybe felt some sniffles, or you hadn't slept well, or you weren't, or it was cold and rainy out, whatever it might be, it has become that threshold for making that decision about whether to go to school or not has just kind of fallen somewhat with the erosion of that norm. And it's just, it's an enormous challenge now, because what do you do? How do you build back a social norm, build back a routine that is really what we're talking about right now. 
And when you layer in other circumstances like poverty or, or family challenges, it can get very complicated. Tell us the story of King and Jaisaia Prude, which you profile in this piece. They were two children that, that we were looking for in the suburbs of what are called the downriver suburbs of Detroit, um, these industrial towns that stretch down southwest of Detroit, where a lot of the big auto plants are. And I was out with a, a woman by the name of Shapria, who works for a company called Concentric that gets hired by school districts to go out looking for chronically absent kids. This company has been around for a little more than a decade, and their business is now booming because you've got all these districts that are desperate to find these absent kids. And so she is working for these districts in the Detroit area. And she had this whole list of kids on this day. And it was my third day going out with her. She was going looking for these kids on her list. And we came to this one house, small house, that had two brother and sister living there that were on her list. And they've been missing a lot of days. They were nine and 11 years old, if I recall right. And and she knocked on the door and the mom was home. And and most of the kids, mom has eight kids. Um, most of them were home, sort of kind of gathered around her. And and she was, the mom was actually quite friendly and said that what had happened was that that Josiah and King had been, had woken up in the morning. She'd gotten them up to go to school in the morning. But then what she told the worker who was, who was coming to the door was that she had then gone off to, gone, left the house. They assumed she was going off to her job as a security guard. And when she came back, they had gone back to bed, um, had not gone to school, had gone back to bed. And by that point, it was, you know, 1030 or so. And she decided it was too late to send them to school. What she told me later when I went back to, to talk to her more that evening was slightly different, that she had sounded like she had gone to, back to bed after getting the kids up. And because her job is actually usually at night, she'd gone back to bed. And and then when she'd woken up, the kids were still at home. In any case, the kids were still at home. And and this was just, you know, it's a very common kind of situation in a lot of families where you have parents with tough work, sleep schedules, where they're not necessarily fully present in that morning period when you're getting kids off to school. What what she also talked about though, the mom, whose name her name was Quantica. What Quantica told me was that it had just gotten a lot tougher since since COVID because during that year when schools were closed, it was just, as she put it, the kids just got too comfortable. And that was the word I kept hearing people use, comfortable. There was a certain you know ease and comfort to that pandemic period when people were just, kids were just taking, doing school online. You would just, you would log on or you, maybe you wouldn't log on and and you were just in comfort of home. Literally, there was no um, struggle to get kids out the house in the right clothes, to the bus, to the car, whatever it might be. There was just, in a way, we were all just kind of giving ourselves a pass, in a sense, in these districts that were had such long school closures. And it's really hard to get kids and families back into that basic regimen rigor of, of going to school, even when it's cold and rainy out. And that's what this particular mom was was articulating quite well, that challenge. And and she was just kind of overwhelmed by it. 
I want to just note here for our Canadian listeners that the province of Ontario, where I live, closed schools for 135 days during the pandemic. And the Ontario Science Table in 2022 reported a six-fold increase in severe absenteeism. So this is an issue here as well. You write in the piece that absenteeism underlies much of what has beset young people in recent years, including falling school achievement deteriorating mental health, exacerbated by social isolation, and elevated youth violence and car thefts, some occurring during school hours. You point out this issue has attracted little attention from either elected officials or the national media. That is certainly the case here in Canada. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, it's partly probably because we do have a lot else going on in in our country right now and in the world. But I that's the benign explanation for why this is getting so little attention. I think the the other explanation is that it's an awkward subject for for a lot of elected officials and people in general in these cities that had such long closures, because it means, in some sense, the reckoning with the those that that decision to close for so long. You know, a lot of these cities, American cities, schools were closed the entirety of the of the 2021 school year. So kids were out from March 2020 when the pandemic first hit until they went back in September of 21. That's a year and a half. And and so confronting head on the, the absenteeism crisis is means in some sense reckoning with the decision that helped lead to it, the decision to close school for so long. And so and I think that's that's hard for a lot of people to do. So it's an easier, in a sense, for for elected officials and others, media, to to focus on other aspects of, of the education debate. So you've seen a lot of talk in, in the U.S. about the culture war stuff, the the battles over whether X or Y books should be should be removed from the school library shelves, or you know how should how should um, gender be taught in health class. Things like that. Those are those are important issues that you know have sparked real debates in, in some districts. But but the amount of attention that has gone to that that swath of of, of fights is is really kind of incommensurate, I would say, with with what's actually happening in schools and and with what the real crisis is, which is right now that kids are are attending school in vastly smaller numbers than before. And 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 the kids who are going to school are are really struggling with with the learning loss from the pandemic, and and there just hasn't been enough response to that. Um, you know, if you, if you think about it, it, it really shouldn't be just be on schools themselves to have to deal with this, with this absenteeism crisis. It was society as a whole that decided to to close schools for so long in these cities. It was decided that it was the right thing to do to protect the health of the community, and and now schools are being left to reckon with the consequences of this. And it really should be society as a whole that is somehow responding to help schools deal with with the absenteeism catastrophe. Extended school closures during the pandemic were unprecedented public policy. They occurred with very little critical media coverage. But you are among the exceptions. As I mentioned, you were covering this right away in 2020. 
Can you take us back to the spring of that year in Baltimore and um, what you were seeing with Shamar, the young man that you mentor? Yes, it was just, it was very, very troubling, very upsetting. Um, There's a boy who I've been working with as a mentor for a couple of years. By that point, he was, that spring, he was in sixth grade, um, spring of his sixth grade. And I saw him just kind of vanish during those initial months of school closures where he was he was barely getting online um, in the online school. He struggled. He could never figure out which link to use. There were all these different, everything was always changing. He was getting none of the communications from the teachers. He, you know, struggled with with internet, of course, and with but but more than that, it was just he was it was hard to even for him to even to get the information about where where he what where he was supposed to be doing school. So he was ba- basically doing virtually none. And he had a, he has a very difficult home life with very little supervision. He kind of drifts between at the time was drifting among various homes, and he was just completely on his own. He was spending all of his days not going to school meant that he was spending all of his days in various dark rooms with the blinds drawn on his phone or game system, just playing games and with no kind of, no kind of real routine, um, you know, often just staying up until wee hours and, and, and just completely kind of falling off the face of the earth in a sense. And, and, and I knew this was happening to so many, many other children as well, who had just become kind of invisible to the rest of us. Meanwhile, so many of us in our sort of more middle-class, upper middle-class lives were just hunkering down in a much kind of cozier way and, and, you know, doing our board games and our baking our bread. And in meanwhile, all these other children who had relied on school for, for their interaction, for food in a lot of cases, for basic stability had just vanished. And we were giving them, we were giving them very little mind. I mean, it used to be that you, if a kid, you know, urban school, Public school children often are not very much on a lot of our radars, but you do at least see them when they're, you know, walking to school in their school uniforms or on the bus or whatever it might be. But in this period of the school closures, they became truly kind of invisible. And and I wanted to write about that, and especially as I saw as the summer of 2020 went on and it became clear that in most cities, the schools were, in fact, going to remain closed that fall. And I wanted people to know what that meant for students like Shamar. and. For what it's worth, the consequences for Shamar have been just as dire as um, as what I described in this, in this most recent piece. He's struggled mightily with with attendance. He's now in tenth grade, and to the extent that he had, you know, any kind of uh, that school attending norm in him before the pandemic, it has greatly weakened, and it's been a real real challenge to to get him to go. I'm really sorry to hear that. I was thinking about him preparing for this interview and wondering how things were going for him. Um, in your early reporting on Baltimore, you you cite the data that we have on school closures during Katrina. This is an exception to the to the rule of unprecedented policy. We have these pockets in history where sometimes these things happen. What did that data tell us and and why do you think it wasn't taken into account at the time by decision makers? Yes, we do have data from Katrina, from European wars, <laughs> from and also from the terrible actions of Prince Edward County, Virginia, which after uh, integration, after Brown versus Board of Education, the white leadership in this county in South Central Virginia just closed the public schools entirely, just shut them down. 
all the white kids went to private schools and they just shut down the public schools. And so there were a lot of black children in Prince Edward County that did not go to school for several years. And so we have, we had from all these different moments, we had data showing the, you know, predictable consequences of that when it comes to, to literacy and, and academic achievement. And, and I, I, I still am still somewhat at a loss to, make sense of of what happened in that period and why those decisions were made and why why those decisions continued even this is key that continued even through the 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 um, introduction of the vaccines in early spring of 21 a lot of schools as i said remained closed for months after that months after the vaccines became available to to educators and, and others so much of it did have to do with with Donald Trump and with the the extreme sort of negative polarization that you saw happening in the Trump years, you know, and then and then in, into the pandemic, where as soon as Trump started pushing to try to get schools open in summer of 2020 in his kind of like clumsy, boisterous way, you saw a lot of people just turning against that and 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 insisting on keeping them closed, um, it, it almost in reaction to Trump. Of course, the teachers unions played a very strong role in all this, in their insistence on, in a lot of communities, on, on keeping schools closed. But I do think it's important to keep in mind that this went beyond the teachers unions. It was, it was a general response in blue cities, you know, democratic places in America that had a lot to do with with Trump and also with a general, there was a general uh, assessment of the COVID threat that was very extreme and very, very strong. And a general, a kind of a, and it was probably, I would imagine was fed by, very much fed by the media, which was getting a lot of, a lot of clicks out of, out of the COVID crisis. It was fed by, by elected officials who we're wanting to. The more you built up this this terrible health crisis, the more that it became something that Trump was failing to address. So you saw throughout society in a lot of these communities a real hunkering down, um, a turning inward that manifested itself not just in these extended school closures, but in the closures of so much else in in these communities. And, and we're now, you know, whether it was libraries and courts and rec centers and pools and all these different things that hold society together were shut down for a very long time. And we're now seeing the effects of that in all sorts of ways, even beyond schools, also in uh, mental health and in downtowns that are really struggling and violence and crime and bad driving, you know, huge rise in traffic fatalities, all these different ways in which the social norms really got broken and eroded during that that response. I had uh, Shamik Desgupta on the podcast a while back. He's a Berkeley philosophy professor who was active in, in trying to keep schools open there. And he wrote an academic paper calling the closures a moral catastrophe. He he got a lot of blowback for that. And I, I'm curious, what was it like for you as a reporter doing these stories in a moment when your work was was going against the grain? There was a lot of blowback. And some of it quite personal in, especially, you know, in, well, we're both in Baltimore where I live and, and then, and then more generally just, you know, online, it was, 
was, yeah, it was an incredibly, um, it was a very difficult period as far as, as that went. And, and I just, I just had to keep doing the reporting. I, I just, you know, I think it, for me, it's, it, it started out at, with this basic, very strong in, instinctual response that I had in which it just struck me as something that was, it seems so clear that it was not going to end well for society to kind of, to, to shut down as was happening in those months and for the social fabric to be broken in all these different ways. It just seemed very unnatural somehow and, and not wise. And I just kind of went on that basic initial instinct and then reported it out both with Tamar and then another piece I did out in, in New Mexico and West Texas that was more about teen mental health and how teens were struggling with, with the closures. So I just had to keep doing the work, but it was, but it was very, very difficult. And just lastly, I wanted to ask you about the media as a whole. Um, I was still in the newsroom during the pandemic, doing two stories a day when these closures were happening. There was a lack of skepticism of conventional wisdom that was taking place that that seemed somewhat new to me. I still see this playing out both in Canada and the United States. In your view, how as journalists do we resist that trend? It's so important that we do, and I saw I saw the same thing happening around me in in the U.S. media, and and it's still it's it still you know carries forward to this day in some ways. I would say one way to to address it is simply to to really recognize that you're in a bubble and try as much as possible to to push against that to actually get out of the place where you are. One way that I sort of managed to keep myself looking clearly at things is to travel the country a lot. I kept traveling the country throughout the pandemic, throughout those early months. I was still going out reporting and seeing and being in places where where things were being done differently to realize that, oh, my goodness, my goodness, you could actually there were these different ways of responding to this pandemic. And it wasn't all the way that was being that sort of totalizing way that was being done in in blue cities. And, And I think a lot of people. A lot of the media, which is so concentrated now in blue places, was generally not aware that it, that that there were these other options. It was impossible to even conceive of what what the school response was like in a place like West Texas, where they were taking the pandemic seriously and worried about it, but also not shutting down completely. They were taking other measures, and so I think it's, it's just a reminder of why it's so important to actually to recognize that you're in a bubble and much as possible, get outside of it. Well, Alec, I really admire your work. Thank you for your reporting and thank you for making the time to come on the show today. Thank you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts.